This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And yeah, admittedly, I've been reading Ian McEwan's work for a very long time, so I'm not entirely sure where this conversation is going to go. You know him as the author of Solar and On Chesil Beach and Machines Like Us, and certainly Amsterdam, which won the Booker Prize, and his bestseller, Atonement, which actually brought you a whole new audience, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Lessons is the new novel. It's out now, and it is 60 years in the life of one Roland Baines. And there are people who come in and out of his life, but Ian, it is so great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. And would you tell us who Roland is? Well, I guess he's uh, a remote uh, third cousin of mine, a uh, kind of alter ego, um, perhaps a life I might have had. In some respects, uh, he regards himself as a failure in life. He struggles um, after a, a very important and um, scarring event in his uh, early teens. Um, it doesn't quite wreck him, but it deflects him into a life that he might well not have had. And all the time he's glancing back over his shoulder at a life he might have had as a concert pianist or a pianist, uh, or maybe a poet or a famous tennis player. Uh, there are all these other lives in parallel that haunt him. Um, he's born the same year as me. Um, at some point, his life intersects with mine. Um, but a lot of the time, his life is not remotely my life. Right. There are three very important women in his life, um, as well as many other friends. And he's also someone who, I think, like the rest of us, uh, finds that part of the soundtrack, as it were, of his existence are certain kind of international events. And mine are very much Roland's. Um, so working backwards, Berlin Wall, Brexit, of course, recently pandemic, but moving further back, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the Suez Crisis, and, and the Chernobyl explosion, the nuclear explosion. Um, they're events that really happen as if they are the Greek gods moving above his head. He cannot uh, deflect them, he can do nothing for them, but they penetrate his private life. And in that respect, he's a kind of every man. I think all of us are shaped by, to an extent that we really uh, can never fully plumb by those major events in our lifetimes and how they penetrate the personal life. So he's a bit of all of us, I hope. The story never stops moving. I mean, we meet him as an 11-year-old and like a McEwen novel, this is an unforgettable opening. I'm going to let readers discover it for themselves. But Roland's life shares quite a lot of physical detail with yours. He's grown up in Libya. His father is in the military. There are other moments of of overlap that you had previously said that Sweet Tooth was your most autobiographical work to date. And granted, we're talking about a novel that pub published in 2012, mm. but this feels deeply personal in a way that earlier work hasn't. And I'm wondering what changed? Quite a few things changed. One is how I was disposed at the time that the novel was beginning to map itself in my thoughts, which was uh, late on maybe the fall onwards in 2019. And I thought, well, I'm heading into my mid-70s and I really want to just get into a novel and live inside it. Uh, no sense of hurry, no deadline. No sense that anyone's waiting for this. Uh, I don't want to talk to anyone about it, but I just want to inhabit it. And I was already thinking of a life, as I've just described, impacted by certain large public global events. And then what was virtually a global tragedy was also, for me, a personal opportunity. That is, I'd started writing I was a few thousand words in, and our first lockdown began. And suddenly my diary was clear. Mm -hmm. and it's every writer's dream. <laughs> my, my desk diary 
is a double page a week and mm-hmm. it was blank or crossed out mm-hmm. for months ahead. No airports, no obligations. Uh, and that gave me the chance to have a seven-day-a-week, full-time, sometimes 12, 16 hours a day immersion. Mm-hmm. And I've always en- envied those writers uh, who raid their lives. So I gave Roland a, a big chunk of my childhood, raised right. his parents. Uh, I gave him my parents and the sadness and tragedy of a child given away. Mm-hmm. I gave him my boarding school up to a point. Um, I stayed uh, there much longer than Roland did. Um, and, a, and a few other things. I also gave him my time at the Berlin Wall, uh, one of those crucial events that he actually does get directly involved in. But much else is entirely fictional. And the novel opens in 1986 when uh, Roland's wife has just left, vanished, left a sort of semi-loving note on the pillow. We don't know why for a long time. Uh, and that is the crucial event. It overlaps with the Chernobyl nuclear mm-hmm. explosion. He's left holding the baby, literally, a seven-month-old mm-hmm. child, his son, um, Lawrence. And it charts a kind of existence that I almost feel I could have had myself. Right. I was never a lounge pianist. I was never a tennis coach. I was never a poet. I had a luckier life than Roland in many ways. But um, still, he is a kind of outer ego. And so I was able to at least put myself in situations that Roland had got me into and thought, how would I react? I didn't have to really stop to think. I just knew how I'd react. And there were certain scenes, mm-hmm. confrontation with the woman who uh, grooms him and physically abuses him, but a confrontation 45 years later, I stopped myself from even thinking about that scene or even making any notes. I thought, when I get to write it, I'm just going to find out what happens, what I would do in that situation. Likewise, when he finally has the showdown with the wife who left him so many years before, she's now Europe's greatest novelist, and they have a a morning and an afternoon together. Mm -hmm. And she actually tells him how to read a novel, and I'm really telling my readers how to read this novel. Because Roland is very, very divided. His wife has left him. He doesn't know why. Eventually, he discovers she puts in his hands her first novel. Mm-hmm. And to his immense irritation, he thinks it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. Right. Uh, he is angry with her for leaving him in such a way, but he cannot deny the fact that she has had to leave him to write this book and all the books that follow. And read them as he will, looking for himself, he can never find himself. There's no reference to Roland in the book till the very last book she writes. And that's mm-hmm. what she wants to go to confront him about. And that's what she puts him down about and gives him a sort of little manifesto on do not look in books to f- look for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> look for the world, but not yourself. I want to talk about Elisa his wife, who leaves him for her novel. But I also want to talk about Daphne, the woman he ends up with much later. Roland's obviously been traumatized by this encounter over time with his piano teacher. And I don't know how much he knows that's influenced him and and what he considers to be life choices. Are they actually choices or is he reacting? Because there are moments... Certainly after we learn that Elisa has left him and the police show up, he calls them and says, my wife has disappeared and they immediately suspect him. They're just like, well, usually it's the husband. You know this, right? Usually it's a, and of course he's noodling a new poem on a notepad and it says some injudicious things in this. And the police are just like, where's the body? And he's saying, I don't know. But Roland, there's a gentleness to the way you handle Roland that I don't, really remember seeing before in one of your novels well i guess i haven't put that side of myself in there i mean i very much enjoyed being the father of two sons Mm -hmm. um, way back and and so some memory of that and certain incidents in uh in my own life in relation to my own sons uh, are there there's a Mm -hmm. there's a moment for example when i 
when one of my sons was 12, when I realized actually he was cleverer than me. And I, (laughs) he points to some old rusted machinery and gets his father to count the the teeth on two cogs and says, don't you see their relative primes? And he says, what? Um, So they don't wear out. Every bicycle is the same. Uh, So the same tooth doesn't keep meeting the same tooth. and Rodan suddenly realizes that um, he's out of his depth. You know, that's an interesting moment in parenthood, I think, when you suddenly think that uh, you're in a fog and your child is uh, striding away in some um, upland uh, lit by some sunshine of knowledge that you won't have. I lived with him a long time, you know. Right. Well, I mean, actually, I suppose, you know, two and a half years. If there's a softness about him, then I have to confess it's my softness. It's okay. You're allowed to have these things. <laughs> and partially I bring it up because I there's a piece towards the end of the book, and I'm not giving anything away here, but I got a little teary with something with Daphne. And I have never in all of my years of reading you gotten oh. a little teary. And I was a little shocked. And I understand exactly. And listeners, I'm being obtuse for a reason, because it's a delightful moment in the book, and you should just experience it for yourself. But I had a moment where I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is what aging is. You've captured this moment in time that, you know, a lot of us are sort of staring at now going, oh, right. Here we are. And again, it sort of folds back on this idea that Roland at first I was sort of approaching him as if he were sort of had a learned helplessness about him. And then I realized that wasn't quite it because he knows he's weird. He has a moment sort of earlier in the book where he says, I'm weird. I get Mm. it. He just doesn't act in moments where you're like, well, you're actually an adult. You could do this. And he kind of can't. He's always trying to tunnel his way back. Right. To an intense sensual experience, which he can never have again, which he had at the age of, between the ages of 14 and 16, which is why it falls within the category, certainly of abuse. And he thought he was acting freely. Now he understands that at 14, there's no consensual relationship Mm -hmm. that's sexual. And that has given him an unmoored, untethered uh, disposition in in his relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's always trying to escape. So much later and in, in greater maturity, later in the book, uh, he's finally with the woman he should have married long ago. Mm-hmm. What interests me, Mira, is your, are your tears. Yeah. Um, it, it's odd because other readers mention other books that made them tickle. And right, we, right. You could never predict, and I never know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember listening to the radio, some critic saying that, he finished reading it and sobbed into his pillow, and that was atonement. Um, not because the end, well, the ending was fairly sad, but he sobbed for the whole book. And I thought, wow, well, that's, okay. is that a good review or, or not? Because I, I remember the, a very interesting, largely forgotten, great Spanish literary critic, modernist, Ortega mm-hmm. Gasse. And he said famously that tears and laughter are aesthetic frauds. Mm-hmm. And if literature or or a Beethoven symphony moves us to tears, we must be really distrustful of ourselves and the work of art because <laughs> a commercial for lavatory paper with puppy dogs prancing on the lawn could move you to tears mm-hmm. and yet you don't think it's a great work of art. Um, and I have been caught sometimes by chance watching some episode on some soap for uh-huh. my program to come on and Yep. I don't even know the characters, and I'm going like this. <laughs> yeah, she loves him, but he won't. He's turning away, or whatever. And of course, we can't trust our own moods in this. Just, um, you know, just as wine may taste not quite right after you've brushed your teeth, um, you might be feeling a little vulnerable or tired or glass of wine too much or, or whatever it is. Can we trust our tears? Um, so I'm. Uh, I have to confess, quite pleased when people say they're moved to tears <laughs> by this or that. We have to be careful. There's all of Disney, there's all of terrible art that can move us I mean, to tears. Yeah, but I'm a Bostonian. Like, we, <laughs> yeah. we just, 
By right. nature, we don't. All right. Okay. <laughs> Well, that stone statue. <laughs> We're all chipped out of granite yeah. with salt water in our veins. Yeah. We don't really know what to do. Well, Henry James is a Bostonian too. Well, and so I do want to get to Henry James for a second, though, because there is something that you've come back to in in multiple previous interviews, and it's something that's very clear if you've sat with the body of your work, which is incident reveals character. And here, as you've said, you've got all of the major beats, right? Everything from Suez and the Cuban Missile Crisis and Chernobyl up to, you know, 9-11 and Brexit and multiple points in between. So you've got these moments that you kind of just slip in to the story. And suddenly we know exactly where we are in time. And also, obviously, Roland's experience from 14 to 16 with the piano teacher and his experience of his parents and his wife. All of these things, all of these moments where he's constantly being pushed and he doesn't necessarily push back often. Well, he becomes mildly politically involved. He's a sort of left of center guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, he canvasses for the Labour Party in his youth. He, he remains a member. Until he starts falling out, because one of his learning experiences is to go to Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Right. And realize that East Germany then, um, and in my experience, Poland and uh, what was then called Czechoslovakia, were occupied countries. Right. Um, In my own experience, um, I'd be sitting with uh, Polish intellectuals and they would say, oh, we love your Mrs. Thatcher. We love Ronald Reagan. They give the Soviets such a bad time. And and I could understand perfectly well what he meant. And when I came home and I would hear um, the usual old equivalence argument that the West was just as bad as the Soviet Empire, I realized I just no longer believed that for a second. Um, and so I give Roland some of that, you know, he he's a libertarian really. Mm-hmm. Um, and his politics, they don't really shift, but he he does have serious arguments um, and he remains politically involved. But most of us, you know, how, how do we change it? How do we do anything? Right. You can push pamphlets through doors and do your bit, write letters or and vote. But mm-hmm. most of us are not you know, actually turning the cogs that turn the world. And um, Roland feels, as I said before, that he feels like these people, Kennedy, Gorbachev, whoever, are like angry or hilarious Greek gods, full of human failings, just mm-hmm. like us, except they have power. Let's talk about Peter for a second, because he is such a contrast to Roland, and he's also one of the most unlikable people. Yeah. And that's saying a lot. I made it through Michael Beard and Solar, and I'm thinking, Peter... <laughs> would be quite comfortable sitting at a table with Michael oh, yeah. Beard. They, they would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Roland first meets Peter at um, a, a rock and roll gig in, mm-hmm. uh, in Birmingham. Um, Peter Mount is a lead guitarist and singer in a, in a band. And uh, really, a life experience teaches Roland that um, rock and roll isn't necessarily a, 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 a liberating force and some really tough and pleasant people are in that scene too. And Peter rises through the great changes we had in Britain as our nationalized industries became just really sold off to private interests Mm -hmm. uh, and are now all currently owned by Chinese and Dutch and German and Americans. And Peter gets very rich. Um, He hands over some millions of pounds to... um, the government in power, which is the government that even to this day is still in power, and gets ennobled into the House of Lords, our second chamber, mm-hmm. uh, your Senate, as it were, um, but totally unelected. And I guess this devolves around Brexit. I mean, I, I've written and spoken too much about Brexit to really want to make it foregrounded in this book. We're all kind of exhausted with it. But at some point, Roland and Peter, in a remote uh, northern part of England, get into a fight, I mean, a physical fight. Two old men in their 70s, uh, and Roland comes worse off. It's pushed into the river, uh, and 
um, really, that's my displaced version of how I feel uh, liberal Britain is at the moment. Um, it's still looking at wounds. Yeah. And Peter needs to exist. I mean, the reality is, I think Roland would prefer to live in a Roland bubble, but he doesn't live in a bubble. And it's that's the piece that gets him. It's It's the connecting with other yeah. people and operating on terms that he's not necessarily thrilled about, but mm -hmm. doesn't really have the energy to do anything about. Well, he fights. He fights. I mean, yeah. uh, and uh, when he limps back home, it's his 70th birthday, and all his family's there and around the table. And when he looks at them, there's a social worker, there's a doctor, a communal community housing association person. He realizes that we are the lost people at the moment. We we don't run this place and our values are not the values um, that hold sway mm -hmm. in this particular time. So he lives the examined life. I mm -hmm. say that for him. And, uh, you know, he's got a broken rib or two and a big scar across his forehead and um, he will live to fight another day. But he's not <laughs> passive, you know. And, mm -hmm. I mean, the novel is, I think, quite full of incident in, in Roland's life, from being a, a murder suspect um, right through to the end of, of a man who is looking at the incredible optimism he felt in 1989 right. when the Berlin Wall came down and everything seemed possible in international politics. And his heart was just bursting with the idea of possibility. And basically it charts as an adult the next 30 years that brings him to reflect on the events last year of January 6th and the assault on the capital. I could have gone on, I could have continued this to the Ukraine war or even to the threat of war in, in the Taiwan Straits, or whatever. Right. But that and climate change and various other things that are going around make him wonder whether as he gets older, does he do that typical old person's thing, think, because I'm old and dying, the world is old and dying. Right. Or is it really? I mean, just because old people think it doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, so, I mean, that's something that the reader has to sort of share with him and wonder too. He doesn't, he can't give us an answer. Did you start out knowing where you were going to go with this? Did you have sort of, for want of a better phrase, an inciting incident that made you sit down and say, or was it just Roland who rolled up and said, hi, I'm here. I would like you to write a novel about me. Roland and his piano teacher were right there from the beginning. And the first thing I wrote was actually the first three pages of the book okay. as, as, as published. Mm -hmm. um, and then I stopped, as I often do when I've written what I think might be an opening, uh, right. and sat on it for a couple of months. Writing, rewriting, shifting it around, wondering what sort of style it should be written in. Um, then I thought back to all the notes I'd made uh, two or three months before, and I knew actually I was committed um, mm -hmm. and we were going to make this journey. I think what was heightened for me was that lockdown was for many of us, especially they say, uh, people, let's say, over the age of 30, mm -hmm. who had enough adult life. I think lockdown, as long as you weren't actually ill um, or too lonely, it was the time of the backward glance, the backward mm -hmm. look. I, mm -hmm. I was involved in so many conversations, usually by phone or Zoom, um, sometimes then afterwards when the lockdowns had ended, when the first lockdown had ended, with people who've been thinking a lot about their parents, their childhood, their past, the decisions they made. And it's it's that that I really wanted to get involved in. Um, how we make a life, how we look back on it, how our backward look itself becomes a narrative, because it changes. Right. So you, you think, in, I think once mid-30s, I think it's the first time you maybe get a real distance, and I write about this in the novel, mm -hmm. on who you are in relation to your parents, your childhood, the past, um, where you love or not loved, where you love too much, whatever it was, and the choices you made. Or did you make any choices? 
Right. Uh, because one thing that haunts Roland is that while Alyssa has made a savage, ruthless, and in some, to some degree a heartless decision to abandon her baby and husband and pursue what she must pursue, there's something also very enviable about that. Women mm-hmm. who do it get castigated in the mm-hmm. biographies. Men are somehow seen rather heroic for doing it, and I, I wanted to explore that too. Right. Um, yeah, the literary biographies are just stacked with men who, you know, drank a lot, uh, had loads of lovers, abandoned their families, yet still wanted to be supported in some way or other. Um, poor Doris Lessing, who, I mean, her story is not quite that, but there was a, an element of that. Um, she got a lot of stick for it in a way that no man would, I think. So, um, how we construct that past and how others around us are constructing it too um, was going on around me. And, and so that ref- that's why I wanted to write a whole life novel um, that, that gives us more or less Roland from the age of 10 to, to Roland still, you know, in, in, into his 70s. Um, and always the shadow that fell over his parents um, was the Second World War and the secret they sat on all their lives and never divulged. And so I gave Roland my experience of finding a brother. Uh, I was in my early 50s uh, when I understood that my mother, uh, who was already married but having an affair with my father, her first husband was away uh, fighting in Italy and North Africa. Uh, she got pregnant by the man who became my father, and together they gave a child away on a railway station. And now here he was in front of me, um, a lifetime later, um, and us meeting, going towards each other in a in a pub in England, fumbling between an embrace. Do you embrace such a person or a handshake? Right. I can't even remember which one I did or which one he did. Somehow it all just was so clumsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as I was walking towards him, I thought, this is like something in a dream. Um, this is like something in a novel. It's quite common. One hears about this, but I never thought this would be uh, my drama. Um, so all of that, the backward look, the shadow of the Second World War, um, the tumult of private lives, uh, secrets held, and how the past is recalculated became very much part of the privilege of being locked down. And all writers are professional lockdown artists. I mean, lockdown is what we live for, but we never had it in, in such quantity. Um, and as long as one wasn't ill or too close to someone who... Um, was extremely ill, there was space to do all these things. And speaking of the tumult of private lives, um, Roland is quite intrigued by Robert Lowell, the poet, who I might argue is the patron saint of Massachusetts. What does a writer owe himself? And this is something that Roland's wife clearly has figured out for herself in a way that other characters in the book have not. She knows exactly what she needs to make her art. And here's Lowell just sort of stabbing Hardwick in the face, in print. I mean, if you read this collection, and it's been a minute since I've read it, but I remember thinking, wait a minute, what just happened here? Can we just revisit Lowell for a second? Because he doesn't always pop up. Well, um, he's a fascinating person, um, and I think a great poet. And... I have Roland go to a lecture, mm-hmm. and the lecturer wants to answer that question, should Lowell have published this? Right. Uh, and is it a great book? Mm-hmm. And he takes a, very, a rather difficult position. He says, it's a great book, maybe his best, but he shouldn't have published it. Roland is sitting in the audience, mm-hmm. and, and he wants to say, I've got something to say here too. I'm... I'm the left behind. I'm the hardwick of this story. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want. He's been told by the chairman 
the adjudicator of the of the proceedings. I don't want any statements. If you scrolling out to the audience, you must have heard it a thousand times. Maybe you've even said it. I don't want statements. I don't want manifestos. Ask a question from the lecturer. A row goes on because a woman stands up and says, there's an elephant in the room here. Uh, Lowell behaved like this because he's a man. And they behave throughout literary history in this way. And there's a great deal of applause. And Roland never gets to speak. He puts his hand up and then the Q&A is over. But it brings him back again to this business of, does he still love her? Is he still angry with her 25, 30 years on? And he finds actually, no, something has shifted. All he thinks about now is she's a great novelist. Mm-hmm. He can't wait for her next book. He always gets it in proof from her publishers, an old friend of his. It's an old, old question, and I think it's endlessly fascinating that some of the most loathsome people in the world are also great artists. Um, and you might want to chop their statues down or think they have the wrong views on this and that. And, you know, you think of Dostoevsky's anti-Semitism. I mean, it's endless. Um, Lots of writers in the past had terrible attitudes, even by the standards of their time, even if we Mm. forgive that too. And where do we stand when we sit down to Wagner or um, um, read yet again with pleasure or admiration Dostoevsky? It's irresolvable, but it's always good to keep having that conversation. We can't deny the past. We don't want to eliminate it. Um, The lives that certain artists led um, might dismay us. And we somehow have to live with the admiration and the dismay, which in part is what Roland feels in relation to his own wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, this brings me back to, isn't the novel the perfect art form for this, though, because of the way you can cover time and the interiority of your characters? I mean, this idea of character is, you could argue it's relatively recent, which sounds like a strange Mm. thing to say, but it's not. Serialized fiction reads differently from a character-driven narrative. It's just the pacing is different. The pacing in lessons is pretty extraordinary because you're, you do cover 60 years and you get these sort of moments of, really, <laughs> sorry, Roland playing the piano, <laughs> yeah. the whole idea of being a hotel pianist. It's very funny until he shows up at that final lesson and tells the teacher his name is Theo Monk and she figures out exactly who he is. Yeah, in so that he, he just plays the opening bars the opening, around midnight and she knows. Mm-hmm. And the, that's when they know, he, she knows, they knew. And I knew, mm-hmm. that's when I sort of think myself into this scene. I didn't know where it was going to go. I just right. wanted to hit it. On character, it's interesting because I think that the invention of character in fiction is our brilliant inheritance from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, from Jane Austen, Flaubert, Stendhal, Dickens, um, Tolstoy. And modernism was its interruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. Virginia Woolf famously said character is dead. Yep. Uh, although I think actually to the lighthouse, etc., Stalloway, Stalloway is a great character. But it seemed like an interruption. Um, in post-war European literature, for example, with its very strong existential qualities post Post postmodern feel about it. Character was missing. I mean, mm-hmm. I've always been interested in it uh, because I think without it, we can't have that human curiosity. And I, I know that curiosity is considered a rather low matter, but it's very hard to read a novel you're not interested in. The only time we ever have to do that is when we're at college, you know, when you've got to read something. If you're not interested, the rest of adult life is gloriously devoted to only reading the novels that interest you. We no longer have that sort of burden on us. School is over. We're out. We're free. And personally, the incredible artificial, clever matter of making a character out of symbols on a page is one of the most wonderful things to to, uh, experience as a reader. 
I love it. Sometimes I've been in discussions with readers uh, who, for example, I, one of my novels, Enduring Love, I was with a group of uh, 30 people and, uh, and a fellow stood up and said, I, I hate this novel. <laughs> and I said, oh, why? He said, because I hate the character of whoever it was. I right, hate right. that. And, it was the, and that was a first-person novel. Uh, yeah. I just hate him. I hate him. And I, I said, well, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm rather flattered. I mean, he was talking about him as a, like a hated neighbor who lived up the street. He knew everything right. about him. He loathed. I said, I can't help feeling very touched and flattered by this because he seems so real to you. Uh, so hate away, but uh, I'll take it as praise. And you should. I mean, I don't have to like characters no. to no. get lost in. I, I just, I absolutely don't. I mean, I just want to know what's next. Yeah. And, and that's Curious. always... Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, there were plenty of people in, in lessons where I was, you know, raising a proverbial eyebrow at, but again, I'm responding to fictional characters because they are so real. And because you slide in these tiny details in a single sentence that make you just stop for a second and say, oh, right. And again, it's that grounding. I referenced it earlier in the show where we were talking about, you know, Chernobyl, you're just describing it as, you know, the toxic cloud that's wafting towards the UK and you're not, and then later other details pop up and whatnot, but it was just that little detail where I was like, Oh, I know exactly where I am. I know exactly what period this is and what's happening. When you're working on a new piece, whether it's a novel, short story, screenplay, whatnot, you're working, you're starting from the sentence level though. It strikes me that you yeah. really are in there and reworking sentence by sentence until you get the thing that you are looking for. And that is the emotion. That's the connection piece. I have to trick myself into <laughs> I'm not good at starting. Okay. Um, and many of the novels I've, I've written began with me simply setting myself free in um, a large green notebook. Uh, they always have mm -hmm. to be have green covers, and okay. like many writers, superstitious about this. Um, and because it's longhand and no one's going to see it, uh, I feel completely free to just doodle. And out of that will, might come eventually three or four paragraphs and suddenly mm -hmm. I'm intrigued. Uh, once it was, I, I was at a, a rather boring meeting and I had to sit with a smile on my face. Um, so I took out uh, a, a tiny notebook and out of nowhere, as if from a, on a ticker tape, uh, I wrote a sentence that said more or less like this. So here I am upside down in a woman. And I thought, ah, a novel. He must be a fetus. He or she must be a fetus. Uh, what am I going to do? And I left it, and then it sat, and then it wouldn't go away. And then I wrote, and, and then I was tripped into writing a, a short sort of jeu d'esprit uh, called Nutshell, which is a kind of um, take on Hamlet. Atonement started exactly the same way. Uh, looking after my sons, they were off playing in some sort of hotel holiday place we were at and um i knew i had an hour and a half and i just started writing something and a young woman runs into a very elegant drawing room with some wildflowers in her hand she's just picked uh, and there's a man outside in the garden that she's very interested in but is, doesn't want to meet but she does she's conflicted and again i left it for weeks i kept returning to What's all this about? And realized eventually that it was about all the things I'd been writing in notebooks uh, the year before that it, it was rich, it was possible for me, it was liberating. There are some people who would argue that Child in Time, which 87, I think, pubbed in 87, that yeah. was the real switch for you from mm -hmm. sort of the edgier stuff that you were doing in the cement garden. Yeah. And then we get to child in time where you sort of shift into this sort of more character driven, hmm. slightly more familiar to the people who have been reading you more recently. And then there's an entire gang of readers that come to you with the success of Entonement. 
something like six million copies in print worldwide now across formats, I think. Or is it more than that now for atonement? Oh, I where mean, are my royalties? Uh, it, I mean, atonement was if for a moment, and obviously it still continues to sell, but there was a moment where everyone was completely obsessed with Brian and Cecilia and Robbie. And and then of course the film came later and mm. whatnot. But it seems to me that part of the joy of writing for you is one, your own curiosity mm. and where it's going to take you. And also this idea that you won't separate literature from real life. I mean, all of your books are in some ways a little sideways mm. approach at reading and writing and your philosophies about all of those things. Yeah. Well, I'm very good at not writing. Um, so, um, the time between novels is very is very uh, precious and important to me because I do a lot of reading and I do sometimes traveling, sometimes hiking, but um, I just go back into the world. Um, yes, I'm making notes, um, sometimes um, making false starts and so on, but I'm I'm quite happy not to be finding myself once more in the foothills of this enormous stamina demanding effort to complete an all. Uh, so by the time I start, I'm a slightly different person. Uh, and everything that's been on my mind and on the minds of all the people around me has sort of filtered through into this. I mean, the term was a historical novel, really, although it, it comes right up into the present, and the present then was 1999. What I've especially done with lessons, which is simply to live inside the moment when I'm not writing, and then sort of carry that over into living inside the novel, so that what's going on around me um, is um, percolates through, even if it's displaced in time. And I'm a great admirer of Saul Bellow's novel, Herzog. Um, there's a moment when Moses Herzog's going to uh, have dinner with his lover, who's a florist. Uh, she's cooked dinner and he goes into the bathroom to wash his hands and he looks in the mirror and he says something like, you know, well, what is it? Um, and he then speaks to himself, thinks to himself, a little soliloquy, but I couldn't help feeling was a kind of manifesto uh, for me. I thought it was addressed to me. And it says, to be a person in a century, in a city, in the conditions of modernity. Uh, in other words, what it's like to be here now uh, is, I think, one of the great projects of the novel. And the reason I thought that the second half, possibly more of the 20th century, was the time, the great time of the American novels, they never lost faith in that idea of giving you what it was to be in the street, in the time, in the circumstance. In other countries, there was magical realism, yes. Um, uh, here in the 70s, we were much obsessed with sort of marital dramas and class issues, but it didn't have that sort of sense of real engagement of the now. And I think um, German French novelists suffered a little from the shadow cast by the kind of existential novel. Um, that's that's past now, and I think that doesn't mean you need to be endlessly commenting on politics of the day. I just mean something of the of the spirit of the time is is there. And that requires the realist novel. I mean, there's no, for me at least, I know I've written these fantasies narrated by a fetus and uh, cockroach and so on, but those were really little holidays from right, right, right. The, the project. Uh, and the project is, to me, the realist novel. That's why I like Franzen so much. I mean, I think he's fully engaged with that. And here's another novel, a Chinese novelist, I think is brilliant. Has she come your way? Zhang Yuran? 
Oh, yeah. I have Cocoon. not seen that yet. Okay, oh, I, I will go looking for that. I don't know if it's published in the States yet. Does she engage with, okay. with her generation, a millennial Chinese, looking back at the generation who raised them, who were scarred oh. by the Cultural Revolution? Oh, and I they have no that. siblings. Yeah. No siblings. So there's a kind of emptying out that's really young. I'm very impressed by it. So that's my sense. Moses Herzog uh, put it down on paper for me. Now, I used it as the uh, epigraph to my novel Saturday. Mm-hmm. You did, and you quote actually Joyce. There's a great line for your epigraph in Lessons. Yes. But I do, I do want to raise for a second. I'm just here's my galley. Oh, I have, I have many, many notes in front of First me. But I realized the ga- yes. First we feel, then we fall. Yeah, I have to say that the last. I mean, I I've never read all the way through Tinkins Week. I have to confess. But there are pages, if you just concentrate on the odd page, the poetry of it, and the last two pages of uh, Finnegan's Wake. And my friend, uh, Professor Colin McCabe, wrote a wonderful sort of hymn to, to that novel and to its triumphant end. Uh, and he thinks it's the most beautiful thing Joyce ever wrote. Uh, and it has something in common with Molly, Molly Bloom's um, soliloquy at the end of Ulysses. So anyone who's daunted by getting through the 500 pages of, uh, of Finian's Wake, just turn to the end, the last couple of pages, and then maybe you'll be tempted to more. But yes, first we feel, then we fall. Um, at one point, Roland sardonically notes that that in old old age, it's just all about falling. You know, downstairs, uh, tripping over uh, in the getting out of the bath or the shower, slipping on leaves in, in, in the fall. That sense of the fall for Roland is just that trajectory, that downward trajectory I was describing of how you got from the Berlin Wall tumbling to um, a near collapse of uh, the democratic consensus of the transfer of power and that um, assault on, on January the 6th. It's not that he's pessimistic at the end, it's full of foreboding and also joy. I mean, in a sense, the novel ends with a little nine-year-old German girl leading Roland, um, her granddad, across the room. And the mice, I wanted to get a sense of it. there's another generation. Um, and uh, he doesn't quite say it. You don't see it on the page, but there's a sense that's where he's putting it. Yeah. Ian McEwen, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. This was a real treat. Thank you. Thank you, Mira. Joy to be Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Lessons. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. Um, I'm going to jump right in if you're okay with that. Good, because I love Ian McEwen. <laughs> So I've been very excited for this episode. Um, He's one of my favorites. And I decided to choose a book uh, to recommend by one of my other favorite authors, Mr. David Mitchell. I love him so much. (laughs) Uh, So the book that I chose is Black Swan Green. Uh, This is a fantastic coming-of-age story. It follows young Jason Taylor, who is 13 and one of my favorite characters in books of all time. He's so kind. He's You just want to fold him up and say, it's going to be okay. The book is really his story in this small, sleepy town in the UK in the 80s. Um, but it really talks a lot about those universal truths of adolescence, the fallout of his parents, um, overcoming shyness, trying very hard to stay kind, keeping secrets, um, owning up to mistakes, and ultimately that difficult decision of choosing the right path versus the easy path. Uh, this is all reflected as well in the troubles that the UK was facing uh, during this time period, so very relevant on what's going on with his life while the world around him is in disarray. This is a short novel, uh, but I recommend you take your time with this book. Uh, Let David Mitchell's sentences really sink in. Give yourself some time to really read them over and over again. He is a a master at crafting a beautiful sentence. 
And also, you just want to spend as much time with Jason as possible. Uh, he is a lovely character. And I think you should let his observations of the world sink in as well. Um, please, please check out Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. I love it so much. Becky, do you have one for us? <laughs> I do. Yay. Um, so, yeah. So the book that I thought of to go along with lessons is Moonglow by Michael Chabon. Oh, nice. It's... Uh, this is a great story. Um, what is so interesting about it is that it's actually a semi-autobiographical book in that it is born out of Michael's own experience with his own grandfather, who uh, at the end of his life, he was uh, struggling with terminal bone cancer, and the doctors had given him very strong painkillers uh, to kind of mitigate that, that pain that he was in. So when Michael visited him that last week or so of his life, the stories that were coming out of his grandfather's mouth were things he had never heard before. So mm. it was uh, very interesting. He learned quite a lot. And then this story is born out of that. So the story is um, basically um, the deathbed confessional of a grandfather to his grandson. And it follows uh, this man through um, the Jewish slums of pre-war South Philadelphia to the invasion of Germany, to a New York prison, <laughs> to uh, uh just, yeah, and beyond. And throughout, you're seeing, you know, what's happening to him, but you're also seeing then these glimpses of, of history as well. And um, the story is really, you know, initially you start getting wrapped up in what's real, what's not, you know, what was, what was actually, you know, uh, Michael's grandfather's story and what is made up. But pretty quickly, that kind of fades away. And you just get wrapped up into the story of the secrets and the lies and, and the love that was there throughout his life. Um, you get to hear a little bit about his, um, the narrator's grand, uh, grandmother, as well as um, the grandfather's just sharing his love for her and what her story was. Um, throughout though, it's, it's crazy. Some of the stories are crazy, but it's also funny and sad and just hits all of those emotions. But it's just a beautiful story about sharing our lives and our history with our loved ones. And, um, and just finally letting go of the secrets and the lies and the things that just kind of were, for whatever reason, we held on to that aren't important anymore. So when you get a chance, please check out Moonglow. Oh, fantastic <laughs> pick. Oh, I love it. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Uh, please make sure to support us with a rating and click that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty easy. <laughs> I'm Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks again, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.